This talk is brought to you by the Thomistic Institute. For more talks like this, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. So let's start with Aristotle. It's always good to start with Aristotle. Aristotle, Greek philosopher, famous student of Plato. You've probably heard of him. He wrote works on ethics and politics. He invented biology, logic, and metaphysics. He has a really brilliant and very influential discussion of friendship in the eighth and ninth books of the Nicomachean Ethics. Um, Nicomachean Ethics consists of 10 books. So two whole books to friendship. So the first thing that I want to note is Aristotle talks about friendship more than he talks about any other thing in the Nicomachean Ethics. So it seems important. And the second thing that I want to mention is that if you look at contemporary scholarship or contemporary discussion of the Nicomachean Ethics, you will find almost nothing on friendship. <laughs> so this is really interesting to me. It's the thing that Aristotle talks about the most, and it's the thing that contemporary philosophers discuss the least, even when they're analyzing the Nicomachean Ethics. It's like books eight and nine, but I don't really know uh, what was going on there. It's almost as if we're vaguely embarrassed or perplexed that Aristotle wasted so much time on this sub-philosophical topic. Uh, so friendship, right, the love that exists between friends has been marginalized within contemporary ethical thought. And so there's a question about why that is. And I think, I mean, my hypothesis is, but it's something that I hope that we get to talk about. My hypothesis is that the neglect of friendship um, isn't a reflection of some deep, important analysis of it as sub-philosophical or not interesting, but really just a reflection of our culture, right? Uh, philosophers don't think in a vacuum, they think in a culture. And I think we live in a culture in which friendship is somewhat marginalized and not really taken seriously. So, so that it's worth thinking about why that's the case and whether or not that should be the case. But at any rate, for our friend Aristotle, or my friend Aristotle, friendship is central, both to ethics and politics. Okay? So that's really important. It's central both to ethics and to politics. And I want to talk about why this is the case for Aristotle. And then I want us to raise the question of whether or not this should be the case. Like, should friendship be central to the moral and political life? And maybe you know, just create space for you to ask yourself the question, what was lost with the death of friendship as an ethical or a political topic? Okay, so let me just say some basic things about the Nicomachean Ethics for those who um, haven't studied it. So this is uh, one of Aristotle's ethical treatises that survived at any rate. Um, and the thing that Aristotle tells us about the ethics right at the beginning is that it's a practical science. <clears throat> So it's not, um, you don't do ethics for the sake of theory, okay? You're not, you're not into theory construction when you're doing ethics. Um, it's not about having knowledge for its own sake. The point of ethical science, Aristotle says, uh, is to be good, right? You study ethics to become a good person and to live a happy life. So it's a practical science. Um, and given that it's a practical science, the principal question for Aristotle and the ethics is really simple, but also very complicated. What is the highest good, right? So what is that good towards which all of our practical thought and reasoning and deliberation is actually ordered to, right? What's the goal? What's the purpose? Uh, what's the highest thing that you can achieve as a human being? 
whatever this is, then the life which actually uh, attains that good is called the eudaimon life, right? So Aristotle has this term, eudaimonia. Sometimes he talks about loipraxia, but eudaimonia um, kind of just means blessedness, blessed life. Sometimes it's translated as happiness or happy life. Sometimes people talk about it in terms of human flourishing. But Aristotle thinks that the happy life is a eudaimon life, um, and he thinks of that life as an activity. Okay, so if you're living well, you're not just like in some condition, right? It's not, there's not some mental state that we could say that you're in. Um, you're doing something, right? So it's a, it's a kind of activity, living well. And uh, so in the ethics, he's trying to give an account of what that is. Another thing that Aristotle says right at the outset of the Nicomachean ethics is that when we're thinking about a eudaimon life or a flourishing human life, we are thinking about the exercise, the perfected exercise of characteristically human capacities, right? So we're not thinking about like our nutritive capacities. We're not thinking about like digestion and growth and self-maintenance. We're not even talking about our perceptual capacities um, because those aren't uniquely human. The uniquely human capacity, Aristotle thinks, is uh, reason. Right, that's, that's the thing that humans do that separates us from everything else. And so when he talks about the flourishing life, he says he's talking about virtuous activity. And virtuous activity, he says, is perfected reason, right? Okay, one thing that I wanna say about this talk about the happy life is that this, again, this concept of eudaimonia or human flourishing has nothing to do with our contemporary conception of happiness. So if anybody here is in the social sciences, if you're in economics or if you're in sociology or if you're in psychology um, and you're aware of the empirical science of happiness studies, they are talking about something else, right? They are talking about something that is completely subjective. And they might operationalize that in different ways, but at the end of the day, it's just about the individual's subjective perception of how they're doing, whether it's how they feel or whether they have an abundance of pleasure over pain or what their moods are like or whether they have some kind of cognitive assessment of how they think their life is going. There's nothing outside of this subjective perspective that you could use as a measure of whether that perspective was right or wrong. That is to say, there is no objective measure of happiness. But eudaimonia is objective, right? So Aristotle thinks you can look at people and regardless of what they think, they might think they're living well. But he thinks you can look at somebody and say, well, no, you're not. <laughs> Actually, uh, you're a jerk and nobody likes you. And, um, like, I'm sorry, you don't see this, but it's true. So uh, happiness for Aristotle is about realizing the highest good in your own life, in your own particular life. So it's about living and being in a certain way and not just about feeling a certain way or having a certain psychological perspective. And so one upshot of this is that you can't like manipulate yourself into being happy. So you can't um, get into a pleasure, pleasure machine or take a happy pill or something like that. Uh, the only way you can be happy is by being virtuous. Okay, so what's virtue? Really fast, virtues are just settled, stable dispositions 
of thought, feeling, and action that constitute a good human life, a flourishing human life. Sometimes we talk about the cardinal virtues, right? So we've got prudence, we've got justice, we've got temperance, and we've got courage. Prudence perfects the practical intellect, enabling you to make good judgments in the particular circumstances of your life. Everybody made the prudent decision to be here. Thank you. It's very wise. <laughs> um, you know, justice is about being um, disposed habitually to respect the rights of others in your transactions in the world. So you're not going to cheat or steal or, or rob or like murder people. And courage is a regulation of your capacity to feel fear, right? And then uh, what's left? Temperance, right? That's a regulation of your sensual desires, right? Your desires for bodily pleasures, like for food and sex and that kind of thing. Okay. There are other virtues, but those are like the big ones, you know. And Aristotle thinks nobody's born virtuous. So you have to do this thing called educating humans, and it takes a really long time, and it's difficult, and a lot of times it doesn't work, and you don't know why. But that kind of education is what the Greeks called paideia. And it's not like contemporary education, okay? Contemporary education is like filling a bucket, right? Like you're empty and we like show you a bunch of stuff or we give you a bunch of knowledge. That's not Greek paideia. Greek paideia was forming you as a person, forming you as a citizen in a deep way. And it was primarily about making you uh, have a certain kind of character, right? Um, so that kind of education and training is how you get virtue. There's no other way to get it. Aristotle also thinks that virtue is necessary but not sufficient for human flourishing. So there's a certain element of like good fortune or luck in human life. So Aristotle recognizes that uh, you might not be born in Athens. You might actually be born in a terrible society where all the laws are bad and that stinks because um, you're never going to be virtuous. So, of course, virtue to some extent is in your control, uh, but the world also has to do you a favor, right? Aristotle also thinks like you have to be good looking and healthy. Just <laughs> uh, so th those are things called external goods. I only mention this because friendship is an external good. So it's interesting to think about. Okay, so the Nicomachean Ethics, I said it was 10 books. It's kind of like this ladder of the Eudaimon life. So it kind of starts on the bottom layer and it works its way up. And books eight and nine are when you get to friendship. And that's after he's gone through all the virtues. So, and that's intentional, right? So, and of course it ends actually with a discussion of what the highest good is. Who knows what the highest good is for Aristotle? Anyone? It's contemplation of God. Uh, so that, that's the highest thing that you can do as a, as a human being. Um, but before he gets to that, he discusses friendship. And this is how he opens his discussion of friendship. Aristotle says, no one would choose to live without friends, even if he had every other good thing. So a life without friends is unchoiceworthy. Nobody would choose it. Uh, so that's like a startling uh, thing to announce right at the beginning. So given its centrality to living well, obviously Aristotle needs to tell us, what is this thing, friendship? And Aristotle gives a nice definition of it. He says that friendship is reciprocal goodwill between two persons. It could be more than two people, but it at least has to be two people. So you have two people and they will one another's good. And, and this is very important, they seek to live one life together. 
Okay, so it's not like a vague, like best wishes, you know, <laughs> as you sign off your email. You seek to live one life together, okay? And if you're not doing that, you're not really friends. Aristotle says it requires mutual affection, so you, like, you really have to like them. And a oneness of mind, kind of like-mindedness, and a kind of equality between the friends. So he thinks if there's too much inequality, and for Aristotle, that means, I think, kind of class inequality. So like, if you're super rich, it's going to be like pretty impossible for you to be friends with someone who has no money because uh, how are you going to live one life together? That's going to be weird. But I think he's also thinking in terms of the quality of this kind of like-mindedness, right? You have to have interests in common, right? You, you have to have um, common bonds. Um, Aristotle also says uh, friendship can only be between persons. So I'm sorry, but Aristotle does not think you can be friends with your dog. You can, of course, share life with your dog, and you can have a great time with your dog, and that's cool. But the love between you and your dog is not the love of friends. There are all kinds of loves that Aristotle will not call friendship. Friendship is a special kind of love. And again, it's it's based on this idea of oneness of mind and equality and cooperative action, right? Um, okay, so when we're thinking about friendship and what it means to will the good for another person, we're obviously talking about the good, right? So we need to think about friendship in terms of the good, what is the good? And in part, that's because friends have they have to have, in fact, for Aristotle, they have to have a, a mutual, like, self-conscious recognition that, you know, my friend has some good. So you have to have some conception of what the good is for your friend. And then you have to intentionally take up that good as an object of your practical deliberation. You want to realize that in your friendship. So, so we have to say something about what Aristotle thinks about the good. And Aristotle thinks of the good in three senses. He thinks of the good in terms of something's being pleasing. He thinks of the good in terms of something being useful. Um, and he thinks of the good in terms of, I guess we just might say, intrinsic value. So something that's just good, unqualified. If something is good, then in some sense, it's desirable. So good is also the object of desire, right? So basically, Aristotle says, well, look, there are three kinds of good or three objects of, of love. And so there must be three basic kinds of friendship. That is to say, there are three different grounds of the mutual affection that is shared between friends that picks up on the three aspects of the good. So there are friendships of pleasure and there are friendships of utility and there are what he calls virtuous friendships. So let's start with friendships of pleasure. What is the ground of the affection between friends and this kind of friendship? It is the pleasure they get in participating in certain activities together. And if you think about it, I bet you have friendships like this. I bet you have pleasure friendships. And I just want you to know that Aristotle does say they're real friendships, okay? He just thinks they're kind of unstable. So I've had um, 
a lot of friendships that are based on running, so running partners, where what we did was we logged miles together and we raced together. And that I think is a kind of friendship of pleasure, right? Um, now Aristotle notes that these are the least stable forms of friendship. So these are the friendships that like, you probably can't count on <laughs> really in life, you know, when it's like, uh, when, when things are really bad, it's probably not these friends that you call upon. Um, but I mean, just to take an example, suppose that in the case of my running partners, suppose that I get pregnant, which you know, I just kept doing like for two decades. Um, you know, it's like, well, I'm not really running for the next 10 months, sorry. And then, right, it turns out my running buddy and I don't really hang out anymore. The basis of the friendship is gone. And it's not like I don't wish him well in life, I do, but it's just the ground of our cooperative activity has been, it, at the least it's been suspended for a bit, right? Um, and I think when I think about my college students, these are maybe friendships of pleasure, I don't know. Um, but when I think about my college uh, students, whom I love very much, um, but I think they have a lot of friendships of pleasure and so you can think about like the people that you really just like to party with. So maybe, maybe, maybe like you just have like a party friend and then suppose that friend gets married. And so you can no longer go out every weekend and party and go to the bars and play video games all day or whatever it was that you were doing together. Um, that was the basis of your pleasure friendship. Uh, you're probably going to find yourself drifting apart really fast. And this happens a lot to young men in college. It turns out that a lot of their buddies were just, they were just pleasure friends and then they get married. And if you're like the last guy who hasn't gotten married, like it stinks. So, cause like there's nobody to hang out with because wives do that. Um, so anyway, um, these are the least stable kind of friendship, right? The real friendship, right? You really are like sharing life and there really is like a mutual affection and there really is a good between you but it's just not stable. The second kind of friendship is friendships of utility. So these friendships are grounded in the instrumental value that the relationship is bringing to both friends. So these are people who love each other because of what is useful, right? Um, so there's like something that each person is getting from the friendship. And I have definitely had friendships like this. I had friendships like this in college. I will give you an example. Um, there was, I can't even remember his name, but there was this guy that I hung out with for like a solid year because we were in Latin and calculus together. And I was really good in Latin and I was terrible in calculus and he was really good in calculus and terrible in Latin. So like, we just like found each other and we were like, yes, you know, like <laughs> we can help one another. And he was like really fun and nice. Um, but then calculus was over. And, uh, and then also, you know, Latin was over and, and, you know, we just didn't have a reason to keep hanging out. I mean, there was nothing beyond this really between us. And so again, um, you know, the, the friendship like fizzled out because the truth is I did not love him for who he was and he did not love me for who I was, right? The basis of the affection between us was that we were useful to one another and we really were. And it was good. It was good. Um, but again, this kind of friendship isn't stable. I think a lot of 
work friendships are like this, <laughs> where it turns out like it's a utility friendship. Um, it's a real kind of friendship, but it's not stable. But the most important kind of friendship, the kind of friendship that Aristotle says makes a life really choice worthy is what he calls virtuous friendship or uh, friendships of virtue. So um, this is the kind of friendship where the, the ground of the mutual affection between friends is the friend, right? What you love is the friend. You don't love what the friend is giving you, right? You don't love the pleasure, you love the person. So this is what Aristotle says. It is the friendship between excellent people, where excellent is this Greek word, arete, which we translate as virtuous. Um, but strictly speaking, it just means excellent. It is the friendship between excellent people resembling each other in excellence, and it is therefore complete. For each alike of these wishes good for the other insofar as he's good, and insofar as he's good in himself. And those who wish good things for their friends, for their friends' sake, are friends most of all, or most completely, for they do so because of the friends themselves and not for any other reason. So that's the kind of friendship, that's the kind of love that Aristotle thinks is central to a happy life. Now these friendships, Aristotle notes, are stable because what is loved is arete, right? The excellent character of the friend. And virtue is stable. Remember, it's a, it's a stable disposition. Um, if I say, you know, Jim is an honest man, I mean, you can count on Jim to tell the truth. I don't mean like he told truth that one time when it was convenient for him. It means you can count on him. He will, in a stable, reliable way, tell you the truth. He's honest. So virtuous friendships are stable. Now, Aristotle notices that virtuous friendships are also, in fact, pleasant and useful. And that is because Aristotle thinks there's a kind of unity to the good. So what is good in itself is also, is also useful and pleasant, but what is merely pleasant isn't necessarily useful, and what is merely useful isn't necessarily good in itself. So the unity like sort of goes in one way, but not in another. Um, okay, so now I want to talk a little bit about Cicero. Cicero was a Roman statesman and philosopher, and he wrote this um, really great dialogue on friendship, and he's talking about a friend of his who had recently died. So this is Cicero talking about his friend, and what Cicero is discussing is the reason why they were drawn to each other. And he remarks upon the fact that they weren't drawn to each other out of need. It wasn't like they needed each other for something. They were drawn out of admiration for one another. So this is Cicero. Although many and great utilities resulted from our friendship, the cause of our mutual love did not proceed from the hope of what it might bring. For as we are beneficent and generous, not in order to exact kindnesses in return, but are by nature inclined to be generous, so in my opinion, friendship is not to be sought for its wages, but because its revenue consists entirely in the love which it implies. And Cicero stresses that friendship springs from nature and not from need, and by that he meant that it is recognized as good without qualification, for there is nothing more lovable than virtue the basis of the attraction between virtuous friends. Such friendships are rare and precious. Uh, so both Aristotle and Cicero think you can only have like a handful of like real friends. Why is that? Um, 
mostly it's because you're finite, right? So you can't just like give yourself to everyone. And virtuous friendships require time and attention and trust. Such friendships are the occasion for growth and virtue and also the exercise of virtue. So this is Cicero again. He says, virtue both forms and preserves friendships. In it is mutual agreement, in it is stability, in it is consistency of conduct and character. When it has put itself forth and shown its light and has seen and recognized the same light in another, it draws near to that light and receives in return what the other has to give. So for both Cicero and for Aristotle, virtue is necessary for the best kind of friendship because this is really key Without virtue, we cannot really and truly will the good of the other person because the virtues are what enable us to see what is truly good for the other person and also enable us to help our friends attain and preserve it. So think about it like maybe you, you know, you love your friend, but like your friend is is being attacked in the media and like you're too scared to stick up for your friend. Right? You don't have the courage to come out and defend your friend because you know that if you do that, you will get, you know, all the Twitter trolls are going to come after you or whatever. And so your lack of courage, your lack of fortitude makes you a bad friend, right? You're not actually able to will the good of your friend without virtue. And of course, you could come up with a thousand cases like that. Cicero also says, It is never an excuse for wrongdoing that you do it for a friend. A true friend will never want, let alone ask you to do anything that would spoil your character, since this is the basis of the admiration between friends, right? So I guess what I want to say at this point is that without virtue, this whole conception of friendship kind of falls apart. So if you don't think that virtues are constitutive of human flourishing, constitutive of the human good, then this this whole conception of friendship is going nowhere for you. Okay, so the other thing that I want to say about friendship is that it's a common good. We don't really talk about common goods anymore, but I want to say, or I want to suggest that there are three features of a common good that make it common. One, it's just common to human nature to want whatever the good is. Two, it's not competitive, okay? So my pursuit of the good and no way detracts from your pursuit of it. Um, A competitive good is like the milk in the store. If I go and buy five gallons of milk in the store, there's less milk in the store for everyone else. It's a finite resource. A common good is not like that, it's not competitive. Um, And then finally, and this is probably the most important thing, it's never the sole possession of an individual. So the enjoyment of the good only comes in activities in which others also participate, such that the good is only really enjoyed in common with others. Okay, and this is kind of fitting with the idea that happiness is our natural good, right? So Aristotle just takes it to be obvious that we're social, political animals. We don't flourish alone in an isolated way. We're sort of like happy together. And so the highest goods are common goods. And he thinks, you know, that friendship, obviously, as being one of the highest goods, has has to be a common good. It has to have that status. Aristotle, unlike Plato, speaks of all loving relationships in terms of friendship. 
including parent-child relationships, spousal relationships, and, and this is really important. He thinks of the bonds between citizens in a polis, in a state, as friendship. So civic friendship um, is, is a real kind of friendship. And in fact, it's, it's, it's quite important for Aristotle. Aristotle is clear that the goal of political science is friendship. Because without friendship, the city cannot flourish, the state. I mean, polis, like, this is ancient Greece we're talking about. So friendship is not, like, necessarily this private thing. It has a public political character to it. Okay, now, friendship is not always sunshine and flowers and blue skies. So Cicero dwells on the suffering that he thinks is internal to true friendship and of the necessity of being willing to bear one another's burdens. So he reminds us that the pain which must often be incurred on a friend's account is not sufficient to banish friendship from human life any more than the cares and troubles with which the virtues bring with them would be reason for announcing them. So he reminds us that a well-ordered soul is pleased by what is good, but is also pained by what is bad. And of course, we will be pained when bad things happen to our friends. And in a general way, there's just no love without suffering, right? So an account of true friendship in the deep sense, right, uh, cannot be reduced to just like feeling cheerful all the time. Um, it's, it's not like that with real meaningful friendship. Okay, so... One last thing that I want to note about Cicero in particular is that he highlights the importance of truth in friendship in a way that Aristotle does not. So Cicero says that truth is offensive if hatred, the bane of friendship, is born of it, but much more offensive is complacency. When it's indulgence for wrongdoing, it suffers a friend to go headlong into ruin. The greatest blame rests on him who both spurns the truth when it is told to him and is driven by the complacency of friends to self-deception. Let flattery, the handmaid of the vices, be put far away as unworthy, not only of a friend, but of any man. So this is really interesting to me. I mean, Cicero is arguing that it belongs to friendship to admonish and to be admonished, not harshly, he says, but lovingly and patiently. And basically his point is, look, if you love your friend, you will tell him the truth and you will trust him to do the same with you. You will not flatter. You will not let your friend be consoled by fantasy or illusion. Why not? Because you love him, right? And that is why friendship requires deep trust. You have to trust, right? That you can tell your friend when they've like kind of been hideous or terrible or I don't know, when they look bad. <laughs> um, and to do this, right, you have to trust that the friend knows why you're doing it, right? That the love between you is the ground of your doing this. And it requires a kind of humility and vulnerability to one another. Because if we're going to help one another bear harsh realities, right, then we have to have that kind of trust. Um, and again, Aristotle thinks you just can't have that with that many people, it's impossible. Okay, as I mentioned, the ancients recognized a political dimension to friendship, right? And I think this is um, 
This is worth highlighting because it kind of gets to the difference between the pagan ideal of friendship and how we think of friendship in a modern context. So I think we tend to think of friendship as private, right? It's totally private. It doesn't have any real public dimension or depth. And we think of it in terms of a kind of radical particularity rather than virtue. So I don't think that we currently think of friendships in a virtue context. I think we just think, look, you're my friend. I love you. You're like a particular self. Maybe you're weird and totally messed up. Maybe you don't have a lot of admirable qualities. But, you know, I just have a deep and abiding affection for you and a kind of loyalty. Maybe we grew up together. Maybe we went through some bad stuff together. Maybe you were there for me when it really mattered, etc. But I think we've kind of detached friendship from any kind of objective public criteria that could be surveyed against just the subjective motivations of the friends, right? So for example, we think mob bosses might be good friends to each other, and we might have HBO shows about that. And, I, and, and so one thing that I want you to think about is whether or not that's right. So if you, if you sort of like compare the pagan ideal to like what we think about virtue now, or sorry, friendship now, like maybe something was gained, but probably also something was lost. And, it, and, it's, and it's worth thinking about that. So now I want to talk about Aquinas on friendship. Um, and there's a problem. So one thing that Aristotle is really clear about, and in this way, he's like just super pagan. He doesn't think that human beings can be friends with God. So Aristotle does believe in God. It's not the God of Abraham and Isaac, but you know, um, it's Aristotle's God. It's thought, thinking, thought. And it's necessary. Aristotle's God necessarily exists. Um, and his system kind of falls apart without it. But he doesn't think, um, he doesn't think that we can be friends with God. And he thinks it's really easy to see that we can't be friends with God because he said that the basis of friendship is equality. We are radically unequal to God, right? We don't necessarily exist. <laughs> we die. Uh, you know, there's just, there's just no basis there. And without the equality, there can be no likeness of mind and there can be no shared activity. Like, what are you going to do with God? I mean, Aristotle just thinks that's silly. So... The reason that I mention this is, you know, Christianity holds that friendship with God is not only possible, it is actually like the goal of your life. Whereas Aristotle thought that just contemplation of God was the highest thing you could do. Christians also think that, but they think that it's a kind of, um, it has the quality of friendship. So what could that possibly mean? I am out of time to t touch this in a very serious way, but I will give you some theological scaffolding for thinking about what Aquinas says about charity. Aquinas has a very rich and complicated discussion of charity, and I can only like begin to touch it. But I will say this, Aristotle, I'm sorry, Aquinas thinks that we have both a natural and a supernatural end. So that is to say there is the happiness of this life the goal of this life, and then there's the goal, right, that you're really going for, that everything in this life is ordered to, which is your perfect eternal happiness with God, right? 
And everything that you're doing here, if you're doing it well, is ultimately ordered to that or subordinate to that. Now, Aquinas also thinks that there's nothing you could do to merit eternal life with God, right? If God invites you to eternal life with him, that's just like a completely gratuitous gesture on his part. So the only way that you can attain your supernatural end is through God's grace, right? And so in addition to the cardinal virtues and all of the virtues subordinate to the cardinal virtues, Aquinas has this picture of theological virtues, faith, hope, and love. And these um, are not cultivated through paideia. These are a matter of God's grace, right? So faith as a perfection of the intellect and hope and charity as a perfection of the will are uh, graces given to you by God. Um, now, it's very complicated how Aquinas thinks this works out, but that's the basic picture. And so Aquinas thinks that, I mean, basically it's within the context of his discussion of caritas or charity that Aquinas discusses, discusses friendship with God. And what he says in those questions in the Summa is that we can enter into a kind of higher society with God and with the saints, right? There can be a kind of society between human persons and, and with God, but only through the order of grace, right? That's the only way that this is possible. It's only through grace that we can be brought into or lifted up into the divine life. And Aquinas is very clear, right, in his discussion that God is the highest common good of all creation, right? But in a special way, human beings are called to happiness with God. And this is a life of friendship and the highest common good to which all of our practical thought and deliberation should be ordered to. So when he talks about charity as a theological virtue, he notes that it's not a virtue of man qua man, but man through the working of divine grace, allowing, right, God sort of like through his gratuitous love allows man to share in the divine nature, thus attaining a kind of equality with him. And it is in this essentially graced equality, not available to Aristotle. Aristotle has no conception of grace. That is the basis of a shared life together in common. And it is God's self-revelation to us through Christ that is the basis of oneness of mind and the truth between God and man. So actually, in reflecting on charity, Aquinas manages to hit all the notes of Aristotelian friendship. So he's able to do, he's able to do things with this pagan framework that the pagans didn't think it would be possible to do because he has this conception of grace. Okay. So this is Aquinas on charity. He says, since there is a communication, a communicatio between man and God, and as much as God communicates his happiness to us, some kind of friendship must needs be based on this communication of which it is written in 1 Corinthians 1.9, God is faithful by whom you are called onto the fellowship of his son. The love which is based on this communication is charity where it is evident that charity is the friendship of man for God. 
So God communicates his happiness to us by making us in his image, by giving us rational capacities, by giving us the natural law of reason in the right use of which we participate in God's eternal law. Only rational creatures can attain the sort of communion with God that is the beatific vision. Only rational creatures. Aquinas' God, unlike Aristotle's God, is a creator, and he made man in his own image and likeness, and he made man for himself as a thing to be perfected in communion with him. God did not have to create. He didn't need us. All of creation is a gratuitous gesture of his love, a communication of his goodness, and that is the basis of friendship with man for God. Okay, that's it. Thank you for your attention.